Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers, it's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. Welcome back to the Rational Boomer Podcast. It's Friday today. I'm not really feeling news or politics or tragedy or anything like that. So I'm going to take this podcast and tell a story. Actually, it's a bunch of stories all put together that tell the whole story. I've gotten a lot of requests to tell stories of this type. You see, in the 1980s, I spent some time in the music business. And I was going to tell you how I got into it and some of the crazy shit that happened while I was in it. Here's about 1981. I'm 21 years old. I've already spent about four or five years in the radio business. So naturally, at that point, I figured, hell, I know pretty much everything. I'm a genius at production. So I should start a recording studio. Now, in this recording studio, it was intended strictly to do radio and TV commercials, slideshow audio, doing uh, tapes of all different types. And that felt pretty comfortable to me. So we started doing that. And it was uh, it was okay, but it was tough to make a living. I'm 21 years old, really never lived on my, lo- my own at all. So I had a, no idea what I was in for. But... I got learned real quick, you know what I mean? Not only my own bills, now I got bills for a company. Now, my dad did offer to give me some money. My dad had a lot of money at the time, and I needed some money, so I said, hell yeah, sure. Well, that didn't work out either very well, but that's not a story for today. That's kind of a fucked up mess. I will tell you more about that at some later date. So anyway, I have this recording studio. And it just happens to be Kitty Corner from the First Avenue nightclub. Now, at that point, there was really no fame to that club. I'd been there many times, been drunk there many times and party. But I happened to be in a bank building, just Kitty Corner from First Avenue. No big deal at the time. Wasn't the best part of town, but it was something I can afford. So I'm in my studio one day trying to figure out how I'm going to pay the bills and try to get another commercial to do so I had enough money to pay those bills and this kid walks in and he's a pretty nondescript kid and he says "Uh, hey man do you do music here now I'm not musically inclined at all I don't know shit about music so naturally I said hell yes we do music because I needed the money so we sit down and talk and we record some music it's not very good but it's like 40 bucks an hour and uh, I need the money So I do that, and then the word gets around a little bit, and more and more people that aren't very talented show up at my place and want to spend 100 bucks or 150 bucks to record a demo so they could go on and become a star. Well, none of these people were going to be a star, but I needed the money. Then one day, I get this kid walking in, 
He seems a little sketchy. You know, he didn't look sketchy. It was just his demeanor, a little slippery. You know what I mean? And he tells me, he said, look, man, I am Prince's cousin. Now, Prince was big in Minneapolis at this point, but he wasn't a legend. He wasn't a huge star, very popular locally, just becoming popular in the rest of the country. And I don't think too much of that because musicians tend to lie. (laughs) Not all of them, of course, but the ones I was dealing with certainly did. Anyway, we're talking a little bit and he says, yeah, I'm Prince's cousin. I go, okay, big deal. Can you play anything? Can you sing anything? Can you write anything? And then he pulls out this satchel. And in this satchel is a bunch of old cassette tapes. I go, what's that? He said, well, I was in Prince's first band, Grand Central. I said, really? And he starts pulling out and playing these tapes, and damned if it wasn't tapes from the band Grand Central back in the day with Prince and Andre Simone, Morris Day, and apparently him. I said, well, okay, now this is interesting. There was an album that came out of old Prince tapes called 94 East, and that got to be pretty popular. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe we can do something with that. Then he tells me another story. He said at that point there was some kind of promo um, book written about Prince. It wasn't as in-depth as some of the ones we see today, but it was early in Prince's career. And he said, look, there's a guy who wrote this book. And uh, he interviewed me, and I helped him to write the book, giving him information on Prince. I said, okay, cool. He said, if I ever wanted to get a deal, he would help me. Well, interesting. So he gave me the guy's number. I call him up. Hell of a nice guy. Man, we're, we're still friends today. But uh, he says, yeah, we can get him a deal based on all that's going on. Have him put together a demo tape, send it to me, and we'll see what we can do. So we do put together a demo tape. I should say not we, he did. And uh, I sent it to our new friend in Los Angeles. And he says, we might be able to do something with this. Let me, let me set up a meeting. So he does that. He sets it up with a major label and a well-known A&R guy. So we fly out to Los Angeles, go into the meeting. And I'm looking at this A&R guy. He's young. He's arrogant kind of a dick, but to major label, and he's the guy that can sign this kid. So we're sitting talking, and he's pulling out the tape, sending him the promotional material and all that stuff. And then then he listens to the music. First song, he says, that isn't shit. That's terrible. That's terrible. That's pretty esoteric. And then he gets to one song. He goes, I like that song. I do like that song. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you a deal, a record deal. I go, oh, shit. Never expected this. All the people at home were laughing at us when two white guys, my brother and I, came out with this black guy to try to get a deal for an R&B song or album. They literally laughed at us when we left. So anyway, I'm, I'm listening closely now, and he says, here's what I'm going to do. It's not a big deal, but I'm going to give you a 12-inch single deal. Now, for those young people that don't know what I'm talking about, back in those days, when things were still on vinyl, they would put out singles on a 12-inch album size vinyl. It was real popular. I don't know why. But anyway, he says, I'm going to get you that deal. I'll give you that deal. Now, it's not a lot of money. It was like twenty or $30,000, but it was a lot of money for us because 
we'd never done anything like this. My brother and I are out there. We're a couple of white guys in a world we know nothing about, know nothing about music, but acting cool as shit. You can imagine. So anyway, we, we're excited. We party afterwards with our friend from Los Angeles, have some drinks, and then we fly back to Minneapolis. And what's weird was <laughs> that those people laughing at us when we left are now falling at our feet. I said to myself, I'm kind of liking this, being the star of town. You see, when Prince was in town and he had the time and he had uh, Vanity Six and some of the other acts that were out there, Minneapolis was quickly becoming a mecca for music. I mean, it was a hotbed. During the whole Minneapolis sound era, it was crazy in that town. There were people coming from all over the country to Minneapolis because they felt as though they could make it and they would do anything to make it. So if it meant moving to Minneapolis to get into the record business, that's what they do. So we come back to a lot of craziness. All these people that thought we were idiots now think we're geniuses. And all these people are now coming, knocking at our doors, thinking that we are the source in to getting record deals, which we are not. We got lucky on this situation. So anyway, the A&R guy says, you go back, we'll get the contract set up, and we'll set up a time to record this song. I said, cool. So this kid's working on the song and doing what he's doing. And I honestly don't think he knew what he was doing, but I knew even less. So I just sat back and hoped to God for the best. Then about three or four days later, I get a call from this A&R guy. He says, Mike, we got a problem. So what's the problem? He said, you know that song that we picked out for your guy to do? I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, he stole it from Prince. <laughs> Fuck. Are you kidding me? And then it reminded me of a situation in the studio about two days before. This kid is in the studio working on whatever he's working on. I get a phone call. And the guy calls me up and says, let me talk to this kid. I said, he's in the studio. I'm not interrupting him. He goes, let me talk to this kid now. I go, who the fuck are you? You don't call me up and tell me what to do in my studio. I go, who the fuck is this? He says, Prince. I go, oh, you're Prince. Oh, my God, I had no idea. I would have gotten on my knees when I answered the call. Let me crawl over there and get him for you. So I go get the kid. And uh, the kid gets on the phone. And I see this kid being very nervous, and it becomes a heated conversation. He hangs up, and I walk over, and I say, who the hell was that? He says, yeah, it was, it was Prince. I go, oh, shit. I just pissed off Prince. Now, that happened a couple of days before I got the call from the A&R guy who said, <laughs> my guy stole the song from Prince. So now Prince knows he's pissed. This guy is Upset with me and upset with the kid because he's signing a deal with a kid who stole a song from Prince. So I bring this kid back in the office and I give him holy hell. I'm yelling at this kid because he's embarrassed me. He's embarrassed the A&R guy. He's embarrassed our friend in Los, Los Angeles. And this kid bolts and I never see him again. 
literally never see him again. And he actually took some of our instruments that we bought for him in this situation and stole them too, but he's gone. About a week later, I get a call from this A&R guy and, uh, in Los Angeles. He says, so uh, what's up? I go, what do you mean, what's up? He goes, what are we doing on this deal? I go, dude, he stole the song from Prince. I didn't think we were doing a deal. He goes, I don't give a shit if he stole it from Prince. Just let me in on the uh, information so I know what the fuck I'm dealing with. I go, dude, I haven't seen this kid in a week or two weeks. I don't know where he is. He goes, are you kidding me? We could put out a record in the next month, and this kid could be on the radio. I go, dude, I don't know what to tell you. I can't find him. He's got some of my shit. I'd love to find him. And that's really where it was left. This kid disappeared off into the wherever. The A&R guy wasn't happy. Not so much that he stole Prince's song, but <laughs> that we weren't going to do a deal. My now friend in Los Angeles, he was upset. And then one day, my friend gets a conference call between me and him and the A&R guy. And we're all talking. Now, I'm the, I'm the low man on the totem pole here. I have no credibility at all. But I appreciated this conversation because what this A&R guy said to us was interesting. It was nice, actually. I'm glad he did it. He said, look, man. This was a bad situation with this kid stealing Prince's song. We could have still done something, but this fucking idiot bolted, so now we got nothing. He said, but let me just say this. I got fooled. Mike, you got fooled. And my guy that's in Los Angeles, our friend, he got fooled too. So let's never speak of this again. (laughs) And let's just go on and work on some other deals. I said, wow, that worked out better than I expected. But yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I got nothing to lose at this point. So at that stage, I was pretty well frustrated with the business of music. I saw the underbelly of this business with some of the people I've talked to and this kid. And I wasn't real excited. I didn't think there was much potential in continuing to work in the music business until one day. One day, this other kid comes in. Now, it's an interesting-looking kid. At those days, all the artists were this androgynous, skinny-looking, you-didn't-know-what-you-were-dealing-with kind of guy. This guy wasn't that. He was kind of bulky. He was in shape, but he was bulky, kind of quiet, kind of stoic. And I'm going, who the fuck is this guy? Because you have to understand, at this stage in time, now that people know I got a deal, even though the deal wasn't completed, people were still pouring into my studio thinking I could get them in the door at some record company, which was absolutely not the truth, unless they were really good, and I could use my connection a second time after going for bust on the first time. So I was really kind of admonishing those people and say, get out of here, get out of here. Because everybody, whoever walked in said, I'm a genius, I'm better than Prince. And none of them were. Most of them were shit. But this kid walks in and I'm listening to him. And then he tells me some things that make me sit up and listen more. I said, so what kind of things have you been doing? He said, well, I was the bass player for time. I was in the movie Purple Rain. Apparently he replaced Terry Lewis when Prince fired Jam and Lewis. And he was, in fact, in the movie. I watched the movie again, and I saw him. There he was. 
And he said, now I left the time, I'm in the Jesse Johnson Review. And for those of you who know, Jesse was also in the time. They broke off, did another thing, and they had a few hits. So now he wants to strike out on his own. And still I'm dubious about this whole situation because there's all these musicians and they think just because they're connected to somebody else that they are just as talented. And generally that's not the case. So I take this kid in the studio and I start playing the music. And fuck, this shit was really, really good. And I said, who did you get to play on this? He says, it's all me. I go, what do you mean it's all you? I said, are you saying you played every instrument? He said, yes. I said, are you saying all the parts, even those high female background vocals? He said, yeah, I sang all of it. And you wrote the song. He said, yep. And you produced the song. He said, yeah. I said, oh, my God. This kid is extraordinarily talented. He has some of the same talents Prince has, all the same talents Prince have. He may not be good as Prince, but he's really, really good. So I put my head down. I call my friend in Los Angeles and say, dude, I know the last one didn't go real well, but I've got something I think you might be interested in. I tell him the story, and he goes, well, send me the music. So I do. I send him the music. He calls me back in two days, and he goes, holy fuck, this kid is incredible. We can get this kid a record deal. This is crazy. What does he look like? I said, well, he doesn't look like Prince or Andre Simone or anything like that. He's a kind of a bulky guy. He really doesn't have the look that's popular now. He goes, yeah, but this fucking guy is good. So my friend in Los Angeles starts knocking on some doors. He's well-connected in Los Angeles. He knows all the big guys. And he's giving these tapes and pictures to all these different record companies. And a lot of them are interested Now, when a record company tells you they're interested, that really doesn't mean shit. All that means is they'll talk to you a little while longer. That doesn't mean you're going to get a deal or you're going to get anything out of it. Because these people are so fickle. They like you one day, hate you another day, like you one day, they get fired, somebody else comes in, that guy can't stand you. So it's a very precarious situation when you're talking to record companies hoping to get a deal. There's still a lot of luck, even after they're interested in you. So our friend in Los Angeles says to me, you got to fly out here. I'm going to set up some meetings with some record companies for you, and we'll see what happens. I said, cool. So I got my brother, who was my partner at the time, and uh, the artist. We got on a plane, went to Los Angeles. We stayed at a hotel um, down down on Sunset sunset strip it was the hyatt i think it was it was cool i'd never been to los angeles and this was a cool place this was kind of exciting so we're sitting in the hotel and our friend in los angeles comes picks us up and he's going to cart us around to all these record companies now we went into a lot of record companies a lot of them said yeah we'll think about it we'll call you or you suck get the hell out But there's one record company we went into, and it's an interesting story. (laughs) We go into, and I think it's Virgin Records, but I don't remember for sure. It was of that level of label. And we're to meet with a guy who's kind of a notable A&R guy in Los Angeles. People know who he is. He's had some success. He has some power. 
So my artist and I are sitting in the lobby. We get called in, and just as we're going to sit down, I look at the A&R guy, and I said, would you mind if I use your bathroom real quickly? He said, no, no, go ahead. It's right down the hall. So I go off to the bathroom, and by the time I get up out of the bathroom and get back to the office, I see my artist standing up looking at me. Let's get the fuck out of here. This fucking guy is bullshit. I'm going, whoa. I was gone three minutes, for Christ's sake. What's going on here? So my artist looks at me and he says, this fucking guy wants me to fire you and hire one of his friends to manage me. So I look at the A&R guy. I go, what's the deal? He goes, "Uh, well, uh, I was just thinking he's a black artist. This is black music. Maybe he should have a black manager. And, and the artist looks at the A&R guy and he says, what the fuck are you talking about? He said, now remember, he's a black guy. He says, I'm not going to let some N-word handle my money. I'm going, holy shit, this isn't going well. <laughs> so my artist grabs me by the arm and says, let's get the fuck out of here. We don't need this son of a bitch. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, yeah, we do kind of need this son of a bitch because nobody else wants you. Well, we go back home kind of frustrated, kind of downhearted because we didn't get a deal. It wasn't like the first time, walk into the first place, they give you a deal. But at least I knew this guy was legitimate. He was credible. It was his music. He was truly talented. And we're sitting there one day, and I get a call from our friend in Los Angeles. He says, I have somebody I want you to talk to. I said, who's that? It's for a record deal? He goes, no, it's for a publishing deal. I said, okay, who is it? And uh, he gave me the name. It's an Asian guy. And I said, what's the publishing company? He tells me. And then he explains to me that this was the publishing company that Michael Jackson bought when he bought all the Beatles music. So it's a pretty powerful publishing company. So we're going to get set to talk to him. He's going to come to town to talk to us. So he comes to town, listens to music, we show him around, and it's interesting. This guy's very smart, very good, and very powerful at what he's doing, but he's got a horrible stutter, so it's hard to keep up with him. But we're listening because we need him to sign Jerry. Now, this isn't a record deal. This is simply a deal where our artist would then write music and submit the music, and then they in turn would try to sell the music to other artists. Now, he did offer us a deal, but I got to tell you a couple stories beforehand to understand why the deal went down the way it did. So prior to this, our artist wrote a song, and our friend in Los Angeles somehow got us connected up with uh, a record label in New York and a group by the name of the Force MDs. Now, the Force MDs wanted to do this song on their next album. You might be familiar with the Force MDs because they had done a huge song with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis a year or two before. So they were popular. They were known. And when they came to us and they said, we want to do your song, we said, hell yes. The lady at the label said to us, well, you got to find a producer. I said, my guy wants to produce. He goes, no, 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 no. 
He's got no experience. We need somebody with experience to produce it. Well, I don't know any goddamn producers, but I did know one. His name was Monty Moyer. He was the keyboard player for the time. He lived across the street from me. We grew up together. and We talked about the music business a little bit, but really had no connection in the music business. <clears throat> so I call him up and I say, Monty, uh, would you do me a favor? Uh, he said, what's that? I, I said, I need somebody to produce a record uh, of my artist's song with the group The Force MDs. He goes, hell yeah, I'll do that. I go, really? Okay. So he talks to the record company, works out the deal, gets whatever money and whatever points he's going to get. So now we're set. And we're going to record in probably the main studio in the Twin Cities at that time. So we're in the studio doing that, and it's it's going all right. Guys from Force MDs are pretty cool. Uh, our artist has <clears throat> got input. Of course, there's always arguments when they're producing a record, because even though our artist isn't producing, he's got these ideas, and the producer's got different ideas, and it can be kind of a mess from time to time. It was actually kind of boring, the whole process. But we'd walk out of the studio... And across the hall was another producer from the Twin Cities area. It was about at the same level as our artist. And we'd see him come out of the studio all the time, just shaking his head, pissed off, upset. I go, what's wrong? He said, this girl I'm producing, she's got no talent. She can't sing in key. I got to start and stop this tape every five minutes and this is going to be hell to produce this thing we even got a chance to meet the little girl she was very sweet very cute and just very nice albeit not very talented well it turns out that before this person from michael jackson's publishing company was talking to us he was talking to him and so we knew nothing about this we didn't even know this guy as yet But what I found out later was this guy from the publishing company was trying to sign this guy who was working on this record with this girl. And he made some offers, and this kid turned him down and turned him down and turned him down. They never signed this kid. Now, here's where the problem comes in for our publishing guy. Turns out this kid was producing the very first album for Paula Abdul. It sold like six million records. And by not signing this kid, our guy from the publishing company lost a shitload of money and was pretty embarrassed. Now, we didn't know this while we were dealing with this publishing guy from the Michael Jackson Publishing Company. Had no idea. But we also had no idea about anything. I didn't know anything about this business. So you got that in the bank. That's in this publisher's head. He already screwed up from somebody from Minneapolis, which is very hot now. He missed out on the Paula Abdul first album that sold six, eight million records. I don't know. He lost a lot of money. So now he's got to redeem himself. So when he's talking to us, listens to the stuff, he finally says to me, yeah, we want to sign your guy. I said, cool. That sounds great. Yeah, let's do it. He goes, how much do you want? Now, again, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what a publishing deal like this is worth. So I just pulled this out of my ass. I said, I'd like to be three years at $100,000 a year. He looked surprised at me, and he kind of laughed. He said, I bet you would. Later, I found out deals of this type with people who were unknown, which is what our artist was, 
or about $30,000 a couple, three years. And he says, well, we can't do $100,000 a year for three years. I said, okay, cool. You know, we've been turned down by a lot of people. We've gone through a lot of shit. I don't even know if this is going to work. So, cool. And we let it go. Two days later, he calls me up. He said, look, I'm not giving you $100,000 a year, but I got a deal to offer you and you better take it. I said, I'm listening. He said, the first year, $85,000, way above that 30,000 point. But again, I still don't know. $85,000 for the first year. You have to submit 20 songs. My artist has to write and produce 20 songs and submit them to him in the first year. And we'll pay you $500 for each song you submit. So I'm thinking to myself, 20 songs, $500, that's 10 grand. He's given us 85 grand, so we're at $95,000. It's definitely not $100,000, but it's pretty damn close. He said, for the second year, I'm going to give you $90,000. You need to submit 20 songs at $500 per song. So I add that up in my head, and I go, giving us 90, 20 songs, 500, that's 10 grand. Now we're at $100,000. Nice. And then he says, for the third year, I'm going to give you $95,000. $500. For 20 songs that year. So in these three years, this kid has to write 60 songs. Now that seems insurmountable, but I know this kid. He can write 20 songs in a weekend. I mean, they're all not hits necessarily, but he can do it. He's very prolific. So I say, okay, cool, that sounds good. I'll take it to my artist, but I think I feel pretty strongly that we can accept that. Take it to the artist. The artist looks at me and they go, what the fuck? I go, I know. We need to sign this contract. Now, being a white guy in my mid to late 20s in Minneapolis, trying to deal with a publishing company with something at this level I knew, I was really uh, over my head. I wasn't in the same league. So we decided that we needed to get a high-powered attorney. And through a friend, I found a guy who was an entertainment attorney on Madison Avenue in New York. He was obnoxious and he was expensive. But I thought if we were going to cut a big deal, it made sense to get a high-powered lawyer. So we agreed to terms with him. And then I called him up one day and I said, look, man, we've got a publishing deal offer on the table. And I explained to him what it was, all the figures and all the stuff. And then he started laughing at me on the phone. And I said, what, what, what's the problem? He goes, Mike, you didn't get that kind of deal. Nobody gets that kind of deal. But send it to me. I'll take a look at it. I'll figure it out. And I'll tell you what it really is. So he gets it. And he calls me back in the day. And he goes, holy fuck. You were absolutely right. That's what it was. I go, he told me what it was. I'm not surprised. He goes, you don't understand. This is unprecedented. This doesn't happen with somebody on a publishing deal who's unknown like your guy. I said, well, I, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why he's giving me this, but I'm not, not going to take it. He goes, oh, hell no. We're going to sign this deal. 
<laughs> so I, later on, way after this is all done, I figure out why we got this deal for this much money. And it was because our guy with the publishing company was gun shy now. He was scared shitless. He had just gone through the situation with the uh, other producer and Paula Abdul and what he lost out on. So he wasn't going to lose out again. So that's why he was willing to go that high. Had nothing to do with my business acumen or my negotiation tactics. He was scared shitless. We just happened to be at the right place at the right time doing the right thing. So we got lucky. Okay, so the next step is for our lawyer to go through this contract and make sure it's right so we can sign it and get the deal done. So he does that. He says, okay, you can sign the contract. I'm sending it back to you. And I said, what's the price on this? Now, he'd given us a range because I'd asked him, how much is this going to cost for you to do this? He said, somewhere between $5,000 and $9,000. And so he sends me the contract. I said, how much do we owe you now? He goes, 9000 bucks." I go, are you kidding me? We had the deal worked out. You just changed a couple of things, and you had it for two days. You got a range between 5000 and 9000 and immediately you tell me it's got to be $9,000? Well, I took it back to my artist, who was just a kid who grew up on the north side of Minneapolis, didn't see 10 bucks, let alone 10000 bucks. But he says to me, we're not paying 9000 Tell that motherfucker we're not paying that money. So I'm thinking to myself, I got a pissed off artist. I got a Madison Avenue, New York lawyer. What the fuck am I going to do with this? I go back to him, say, he's not paying it. He goes, if you don't pay it, you'll never work in this business. You know, the old thing. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. This is what a manager does. He deals with these situations. Never had any idea, never knew how to deal with such a situation. So I decided to appeal to his greed. Now, a publishing deal is a far smaller deal than most record deals. This one happened to be notable, so a lot of people were hearing about it. There was a lot of buzz. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to negotiate down with the lawyer because he's a Madison Avenue lawyer. So I made some shit up. I call him up and I said, look, dude, got some good news for you. I got your 9000 bucks. We're going to send it off to you today. He says, good. I'm glad you saw to reason. I said, oh, yes, of course. I said, I've got some other good news, too. With all the notoriety with this publishing deal, I have three, count on three record companies that are interested in signing my artist to a recording deal, which is decidedly much bigger. And he goes, oh, my God, really? Yeah, we'll get that going. We'll make you guys a lot of money. We'll do this. I go, hold on. Now there's the bad news. He goes, what's the bad news? I said, the bad news is you're fired. He goes, what? I go, yeah, dude, we can't afford you. You, you cost us $9,000 on a very simple contract. I can't imagine what a, an important, complex contract might cost us. We can't afford you. We appreciate your help. We'll get you your money, but you're done. You're out of here. Well, now, this lawyer doesn't like that because he's greedy. He sees the next money coming, and he wants in on that. He says, 
what does the artist think? I said, the artist is more adamant about this than I am. So this isn't happening. So then he starts to negotiate. He goes, well, how about eight grand? I said, well, how about five? He says, how about seven grand? He says, I say, how about five? He said, how about six grand? I go, how about 5,500? Call it done. He says, all right. So he takes 5,500 bucks. My artist is happy. My lawyer is pissed, but he thinks he's going to make more money down the road. Well, a couple of months go by and he calls me up one time and he says, Mike, what's going on with the record deals? I go, record deals? (laughs) He says, yeah, the record deals you said you had. I said, oh man, there's no record deals. (laughs) He goes, what? I said, yeah, there never was any record deals. He goes, you lied to me? I go, a little. (laughs) And he says, that's unprofessional. I go, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're an entertainment lawyer in New York City. And you're mad at me because I lied to you? That's what you do for a living is lie. You're not mad at me because I lied to you. You're mad because some young white kid in Minneapolis beat you at your own game. (laughs) and he was still mad so I fired the motherfucker (laughs) I learned some stuff very very quickly when I was in that business it was very cutthroat it was very it was kind of scary because there was a dark side to the business and I really didn't like it now once we're with the publishing company we actually get a contract and I still have it that's signed by Michael Jackson Michael Jackson even made note of this particular artist that I was representing and said, boy, he's a really good singer. And we thought there might be some things going on with that. But what we didn't know about publishing deals, you submit the songs and you assume they're going to be out there trying to sell them all over the place. Get crazy, but that's not what happens. See, when you submit to a publishing company, you still should be trying to place music because they've got so much of it and they don't really work that hard on it. So not much happened for a while. But then I got a call from the guy at the publishing company. He says, Mike, you know this song? I said, yeah, I know the song. He says, I've got two people that want them. They want the same song and we have to decide which one should get the song. The first one is kind of a... uh, you know, kind of a working man's artist. He doesn't have a lot of big hit records, but he's had some album releases. And we know we can get the song on the album and it'll get out there. That would be the safe bet. But there's this young, brand new group we never heard of who was signed by the record company and they want to do this song. So I take it back to my brother and the artist and I said, what do you think? He said, definitely give it to the young guys. I go, yeah. I tend to agree with you. We've got a guy who's a known commodity, but he's not very, very successful yet. So why not go and take a chance on the young guys? So I go back to the publishing guy. I said, we decided on the young guys. That seemed like the best bet. He goes, yeah, I'm not sure. I go, it doesn't matter if you're sure. We are going to go with the young guys. And he says, "Uh, yeah, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can get the upper level to agree to that. I said, dude, you're the fucking president. You can do this. He goes, nah, I don't want to do it. I think the best idea is to go with a utilitarian guy and hope we get some play there and then move up with the next song. 
we go back and forth on this. My artist, you know, he's a temperamental artist. He doesn't want to give shit away. So I have to negotiate this situation out a little bit. And ultimately, we had to give in to the publishing company because they're the ones putting the money up. They're the ones that have to take the risks. They don't own the songs, but they own the distribution of these songs or the placement of these songs. So we have to give in. Gives it to the utilitarian guy. It never gets done because his work gets shelved, never goes out. And unfortunately, the young group was the first album of the group Color Me Bad. Again, another 5 million album seller or more. If my artist would have had his song on it, not even a signal, signal, a single, he would have been a millionaire. But we didn't get it because the publishing company didn't take our advice and the publishing company didn't do the right thing. That's the one thing about the music business. It's very frustrating. You got a lot of people making decisions, a lot of people thinking they know more than everybody else, and you always have to go with it or... Or they cut you, they, they, they let you go, because while you have a contract for three years, after the first year they can say, now you're done. <clears throat> it's not guaranteed money. It's as long as you're under contract, you get that money, but it's not guaranteed. So we had to defer to these people from time to time. And we did, and in that situation, we lost. All in all, when it was all said and done, my artist got his three years, got his money, way more money than he ever expected. Really nothing placed of note that made any money. So the whole experience was all for naught. Had we gotten on the Color Me Bad album, that would have changed everything. But it's because as soon as you got on an album like that, everybody would want you on their album. That's how this business works. It's not how good you are. It's how much success you've been tied to and what they want to branch off of and they want to benefit from. So had he been on that album, he might have been a very successful musician, artist today. But that's not what happened. We went through the three years. He collected his money. He got his studio. He got a house. And he got a bunch of other things. And he's better off now than he was before. But he was never going to be... uh, star writer or star artist. Things just kind of faded after that. He's gone off. He's an incredibly talented musician. He's been a studio musician. He's done all kinds of things. But I'll be honest with you, while we are on good terms, and while he trusted me and my brother implicitly, I literally have not talked to him in 20 years, 15 years maybe. I don't know where he is. He's, I don't know what he's doing. I know he's had some minor successes playing with some groups and stuff like that, but I really don't know where he is. And at that point, my wife was getting a little frustrated with me because the music business and having a young family, a house and a wife, not very conducive because you got to be flying around to different places. You got to be out at late hours. And my wife was just not having it. Just not having it. And so I ended up having to close the studio. Frankly, in spite of the fact we cut some pretty big deals, didn't make a huge amount of money as a manager or owning a studio. I made some money. I was able to sell the studio, make a little bit of money. And then I had to go look for a job. And then we're off to a whole different story that we'll talk about at some time, which is similarly intriguing. (laughs) 
But that's kind of how it went with the music business. Now, you have to understand that in the music business, the time I spent, this is just basically an overview of what happened over a period of time. There are all kinds of side stories, bullshit, crazy shit. So if you're interested in hearing more of those stories, I'd be happy to tell them. If you don't, that's fine too. We've got lots of things to talk about on the Rational Boomer podcast. We're going to continue doing these. We're going to do a lot of these. We're going to talk about a lot of things. If you have questions or comments, please make them. You can go to the anchor.fm site where the Rational Boomer podcast is. Hit a button and record a question that I can either incorporate into the show or transcribe it and put it in the show. I want to hear your questions and comments because this show is as much about you as it is me. I happen to be the one with the mic and I'm talking. I enjoy talking and hopefully you enjoy listening, but uh, I want you involved as well. So I want to thank you for spending time with me here on the Rational Boomer podcast. This one a little different than the previous, and I can guarantee you the next one will be different than this one. But hopefully it will hold your attention and give you reason to listen. So you have a great day, a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.